You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. I said something to start out the speed intervals, the uh, speed work episode when we kicked off the types of quality workouts with that series. I said, you hear all the time, I just need to be faster. My endurance is fine. My stamina is fine. I just don't have the foot speed needed. So if I just get more sprint work, I'll be fine. We kind of laughed at that and said, you know, that's not really usually the case. And then we kicked off the episode. And that kind of got our wheels turning about what are the most common head scratchers we get either from our athletes or athletes around us that say, I just need blank or if, if this or, you know, whatever the common misconception about running is. And we're just going to hit them all today misconceptions and misunderstandings or yeah false realities that people live in in the running and training space a lot of times we think we believe something to be true or follow like poor principle and these are just themes that we've noticed what over months and years like that come up continuously so we figure we might have a little fun chatting out some of the dumb things we've heard some of the uh Maybe we'll stand on a couple of rocks and help people understand how things really should go. And that's it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I want to kick this off if you don't mind. I don't. Because I'm going to take it in a direction that's going to be very hypocritical and ironic. Do I know what this is? Or is it you, you button hooking me again like you did in the long run episode on Tuesday? It's a bit of both. You'll know as soon as I say it, but it's not what you probably okay. think I'm going to start with. And I'm going to say this. I always cringe when someone tells me, no, I just didn't have the right shoes. Really? That makes you cringe. It does. Okay. It does. And and it shouldn't because I am no, I mean, this may be breaking news to some of you, but I really enjoy shoes and I have a lot of them and I agonize over which shoes to choose for a race. However, at the end of the day, if you're good enough, it doesn't really matter, <gasps> which is Bracken. reflecting on me. If I were more fit, I wouldn't agonize over it. So are you telling me that a shoe, there's extenuating circumstances, of course. If you're wearing a road mm-hmm. shoe and you're on a mountain course, that's a mudslide. Yeah, there may be a conversation there. But what you're telling me is if things didn't go great or they went really well, it's non discriminatory as to what was on your foot in a way yeah what i I think i'm really saying is that if if you needed the perfect shoe in order to have any chance at success then there were bigger holes in your game than just footwear because we've seen things like tyler germain took it to you in a trail race with technical sections and a pair of non-stable road super shoes Mm -hmm. like a shoe that i don't think i could run Ever, I would never bring it to to run a trail race in. He wore the the vapor flies. Yeah. And it didn't matter. Like I'm sure there were times on course where he thought this is dumb. I'm losing so much time in this section. But he was just so good it didn't it didn't matter. Angel Quintero 
uh, used to get blisters from trail shoes. He was sponsored by Reebok, so he could only wear Reebok or Adidas. Adidas didn't make any good trail shoes at the time. And so the Reebok all-terrain were his only options, and they destroyed the back of his feet. So he raced in Adidas racing flats. Mm-hmm. He was Road top five in the flats. world. He was top three road racing flats the adidas uh adios and the sl20 i believe i've seen him run in no grip whatsoever very little stability and he's running mountain races in these things and technical races and slappy races and he's beating most people on the planet anyway and i'm sure you have examples of it as well so do you think we spend too much time talking and hemming and hoeing and waffling over shoes no, <laughs> no, Kirk. <laughs> because I dangerous rhetoric, and you stop. I well, that I'm just reading between the lines here. When it really comes down to it, fitness is fitness, and we're talking fractions of percentages either way, based on what's on your foot. Unless you're wearing some of the super shoes on the roads. Yeah, shoes on the road can enhance your ability, and on a trail, they can let you unlock your ability by giving you stability and grip. However, the difference between one and the other, if there's an A, a B, a C, a D, a, and an F ranked shoe, difference between an A and a B shouldn't be a difference maker in your race. Difference between an A and a C probably shouldn't swing you minutes. You, I put on shoes and think I could never run in this. And then you see people who are sponsored by that shoe just ripping through terrain that I couldn't take on that terrain. It's because they're just so good at it. They can get away with it. So I think we should talk about shoes until the cows come home, till kingdom come, Kirk. But I don't believe we should think that that's the reason we're not good or that's the reason we didn't succeed. Unless you made a terrible, terrible mistake, like like you said, running a like a fell race or a mountain race in flimsy road flats or something like that. Take your alpha flies to uh, UTMB. That would be a shoe choice that would ruin your day. But I bet Killian and Alpha Flies could still go top 10 at UTMB. Yeah, right. Exactly. But I, it reminds me of a race I ran. I did the uh, Polar polar Bear Plunge, and they had a 5K in the morning beforehand. And I was hired on with Kerry Tullifson to talk a little bit before and run the race. And then I had a team for charity. And we got a dusting of like drizzle. It was in March. So the lakes are still frozen, of course. It's the polar plunge. And we got a dusting, like a drizzly, sleety stuff. And then it froze on the road for our 5K. And I had a pair of Adidas Cubados, which are like, I don't even know how to describe the bottoms of them. There is, it's it's like a smooth, like race car tire on the bottom. It's just that was Adidas, dirt. not Asics? It was a Adidas Cubado, yeah. It was like a sub five ounce shoe with the lightest anyways, loved them. I'm like, well, it's a road race. I'm going to run in my Cubatos. And I s- literally spun my wheels for a 5K, ran like almost 19 minutes and got my butt kicked by a dude in big trail shoes who just thought like, yeah, like uh, I see that the roads are messed up and uh, I'm not going to wear my road plats. I'm not an idiot. And I was the idiot. Mm-hmm. It was horrible. My hamstrings were so sore, Bracken, from pushing and then curling. My hamstrings were so sore as if I like spent the entire day doing RDLs. It was absolutely wild. So I have experienced it one time, but it's very extenuating circumstances. Yeah. 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 And those are the situations. Yeah. But for every one of those, there's a, a John DeWitt who won the UW Whitewater, the Warhawk Invitational Cross Country Meet on our eight kilometer course filled of grass, dirt, and wood chips. In the Nike Lunar Racer, which just has foam on the bottom, <laughs> exposed foam. 
You know, he was a 30-04 10K runner in college, and he was good enough that he just wore his trainers and beat everyone. There are people who run track in regular shoes or run regular road races in cross-country shoes, and you look at them and say, I could never do that, and it doesn't matter. So it does, but it doesn't. But what I don't want to hear post-race is, you know, the only thing that went wrong and that kept me, I was 12th place instead of first, was I brought the wrong shoes today. Unless it was a catastrophic failing of shoes. And and on top of that, what I don't want to hear is I weren't I ruined my workout today because I didn't wear my super shoes. You know, I was just in regular shoes. I couldn't really hit the effort I needed to. It's like, well, mm-hmm. what happened every other year prior to two thousand and like nineteen? Uh-huh. People nailed their workouts in regular shoes. Those regular shoes were top end shoes a decade ago. You know what I often think is you'll see, like I follow, I don't follow that that many runners on social media, but like Jakob Britson, some of the best, like Woody Kincaid, Grant Fisher, some of these guys. And they're wearing their Alpha Flies or their Vapor Flies all the time. And tra- all you see is they're on the track and they're Vapors. They're on the roads and they're Alphas. They're doing this. And then they put on a tiny little track spike and go race on the track. And I always have to think the discrepancy between those two styles of shoes is so jarring that I'm almost surprised we don't see somebody decide to wear their vapors, which I believe would be track legal. I don't know why, but they're so not different. Anymore. Was, oh, vapors aren't? They're not. Okay. The stack height is yeah. still a problem. Yeah, they, they made a 20 mil stack height rule. Okay. I know the alphas are, you know, like 100 mil stack height, so those are no go. But but you're right. For a bit, you NCAAs in the 5K and 10K was like 60 to 80% vapor flies. Yeah. Wild. And then they changed the rule. All right. Well, I'm sure you could talk about shoes for another half hour, but let's move to another pet peeve of mine or pet peeve or misconception. All right, go for it. Taking the day off before a race to charge up. Oh, oh, what a good idea. Let's completely change everything about what we're doing, what our body is used to doing, the day-to-day training routine, and let's just Hey, it's a travel day. I got to get up early, get on the plane, drive to the venue. I'm going to take the day off before before the race. That's that's logical, right? Is that logical? Take a day off and be nice and rested for the start line. What do you think? Illogical, Kirk. Illogical. <laughs> what don't we do on race day is try anything new. That extends to what leads into race day. You don't try a new dinner the night before that you've never eaten before in your life. You don't try taking a random off day that you've never taken before a quality day before. I only do this before races. Well, that's a problem. You know who still takes the day off before a race is Nick Riker. At least he did, you know, last time we talked to him, he said <sighs> he always he takes does. the day off before a race. And I was like, man, you just left you left 5% of your fitness on the table by taking it the day off before a race. I, I mean that. Like, you didn't access what you're able to access because of that. There's some people that it seems to work. Hobie Call. I roomed with Hobie, I don't know, eight, ten times early on throughout our early careers. He was the laziest man I've ever seen before a race. He'd just get to his hotel. He'd get there a day early if he could. He'd get there on a Thursday so that he had the hotel all day Friday. And he just lounged around and watched TV and watched things on his iPad all day. He did as little as human possible, humanly possible. And he was, he was open about it. He said, this is what makes my body feel good. I'm not going to use an ounce of energy now. I'm going to use it all tomorrow. And he's one of those people that it worked for. 
No he shakeout run the day before? take all that extra energy? No shakeout run. Uh-huh. No workout. Well, quit, counter, quit contradicting what the point we're trying to make. Well, what, I, what I'm going to say is I tried that. I was like, all right, Hobie Cole's doing it. He's the he's a two what sixteen marathoner. He's the world champion in OCR. I'm trying it. Felt like a hot steaming pile of dog poop for the first mile of the race the next day. My warm up felt terrible. It's because I'd never been so sluggish before a race that my body was going into stasis. It felt like so. There are some people that make that equation balance. It's probably not you, because you would have to be the exception to the rule. The human body responds to routine and consistency. That's what we need to stick to. Yeah, and people are probably like, okay, but why? Like, why would my body... Okay, like, resting in theory makes sense. I charge up, I eat food, I don't expect expend calories, I'm saturated and ready to go. But you have to remember that the muscles, tendons, ligaments, fascia, all that stuff is like every day... You don't use it. Let's just call it like a little bit of corrosion, a, a cruise on the outside of your muscles and your tendons and ligaments. It's not what really happens. So don't like crucify me for this. But and the longer you go without really using them, the more rust you have to break through before your body feels good and like itself again. Right. The more use it takes to shed that rust and let you access your muscles potential. I'm really talking like systemically, like you can't really access it because there's like you normally could because there's a, a protective layer stopping you from doing that, we'll call it. And this is all proverbial, by the way, guys. This is not literal. And so when we get our muscles working regularly and they stay generally loose and elastic and loaded, we will call it, like a rubber band cocked back, ready to you know release, when we lose that ability, our muscles just sit, simply don't work like they should. We're not primed. And so you're going to feel sluggish. The initial pace is going to feel too fast. Your breathing is going to be heavy out of the gates. And you're like trying to break through some of the rust that should not even be there from because you, you did a little bit of work the day before. An object in motion stays in motion. If you go back and listen to the Chris Roglowski interview, we ask her, how do you do it? And that's her simple principle. And there's a lot to it. I know most of you out there, even if it's a 10-minute shakeout run or 15 minutes the day before, you're just priming the system. You're making sure the oil is lubricated and everywhere it needs to be. You're making sure your body's getting, you know, remembers how to shunt blood and the and the act of running remains efficient and natural. Instead of being cooped up in a plane in a car and not moving much. Sure, you walked around the airport and the grocery store, but like it's not teaching or reminding your body what it's meant to do on race day. And you cannot put a price tag on that and you will race better for actually running the day before a race. Um, or some sort of cardio effort if you're not quite there. But I'm telling you, like, it may not be science, but it's science for sure. So you got to do that. Got to yeah. wake the body up. And there is some science to that. Like, our blood doesn't fully enter every area of the body with every heartbeat. Your body is a master at efficiency. It sends things where it's needed. And it shuts down areas slightly where it's not needed. It's a master of efficiency. And in order to have everything primed, it needs to be used. That's all there is to it. And and the other part is that our bodies don't wait. If you give it a moment to rest, it's going into overdrive on a process that it's behind on. It catches right. up on work as soon as we sleep, as soon as we nap, as soon as we go to work. I mean, as soon as we stop going to work. Those processes can interfere with athletic performance. You do not want to be in the middle of a big recovery cycle on race day. 
And so if your body thinks, hey, we haven't done anything for a while, let's get to work repairing some areas, that's not going to be ideal for race day. So like you said, object in motion stays in motion. If you let a rubber band sit versus you just use it, the sit one becomes more frail. The used one stays stays supple, and that, that's how our body is. And the other thing to remind yourself out there if you're worried is that you don't have to worry about energy. You don't have to worry about being too fatigued because you have gone through your whole training block doing just fine on the weekends after doing whatever your normal Friday routine is. You did just fine. You hit your workouts most of the time. You had good results. You hit PRs throughout there. There's no reason to expect anything different would happen race day unless you decide to shove a stick in the spokes, which is what you might be doing by just laying around all day. I think laying around all day is the stick in the spokes. That's exactly what that is. Yeah. An unforeseen spending of your day that typically wouldn't precede a hard workout or a race. I want to kind of contradict myself just a little bit, which you started this off with your shoe deal. So the other the other um, thing just immediately before a race, which kind of drives me nuts, is people overworking their mobility and stretching pre-race. And I mean within like a uh-huh. day or two window. Everybody thinks, oh, the race is coming up. I'm going to spend all this extra time on mobility, foam rolling, stretching. I'm going to go do all – maybe get a massage two days before. All these – these things within like within the 48 hour window leading into your race Thursday, Friday, particular, um, is a recipe for you to feel flat, believe it or not. Um, and I firmly believe this cause I've experimented with it plenty and it's, I'm like 10 for 10 on finding out like the hard way, like extra mobility is not the way to like shortcut success on race day. It just is not. And I'm going to use your rubber band analogy, unfortunately, but in the opposite way. So which is where I'm getting contradictory, but a lot of times people try to cram in mobility work, rolling, rolling's better than like pure stretching in my opinion before a race or a hard effort. But when you overstretch, 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 we typically are going to cause a little bit of muscle breakdown. You can actually cause muscle damage by stretching and we're going to make that rubber band less elastic. It's like not going to spring back and power us as quickly as a muscle that's actually somewhat tight. I know that seems contradictory. I'm not saying it's a good plan long-term. I'm saying before a race, if you keep stretching that rubber band, stretching it, stretching it, stretching it, it's going to lose power eventually. It's going to break down and it's not going to be a springy. Those are your muscles, tendons, and ligaments, guys. And if you just stretch the shit out of it every chance you get two days leading into a race, suddenly you're going to be on race day and you're going to feel so flat. You're going to be like, my leg just didn't have it today. Be like, I did everything right. Like, yeah, you did everything right to completely ruin the elasticity in your muscles, the tension that our muscles drive ourselves on. You just ruined that by just making them putty. And so I don't touch it. I'll do dynamics. I'll do drills. But static stretching in particular is a death sentence for your body's ability to produce power on race day. So the last two days, I don't touch it. I do not touch it. And any times I've really touched it or athletes have overdone it, they show up flat. And if that's you, try it once. Eliminate static stretching the first two days into a race or two days before a race. Again, your dynamics and all that stuff is fine. High knees, butt kicks, karaoke, karaoke, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But static stretching. How do you feel about that? Because I firmly believe that. And that's a big mistake a lot of people make. Okay. I stand behind you on that. Cool. And and we really are all kind of wired the same way, which is as the race day approaches, almost all of us start scrambling to think, what can I shore up quick? 
And here's what you can fix in the last 72 hours or 96 hours before a race. Hydration, glycogen stores, to some extent, sleep. That's it. That's it. That's all you can positively impact. But you can negatively impact just about everything in the last two to three days leading up to your race. So stay out of your own way. Just stay out of your own way. Do what got you there. There's a lot of those colloquialisms like you don't change horses mid-race or dance with the date you brought and all those things. But it's true. Don't change horses or dance partners. Just you got there by doing something. Trust it. Because if it was wrong this whole time, you can't undo it in one or two days. But you can push yourself over the edge. You can exacerbate a problem. You can create a brand new problem. And I have done that before prior to races. It just you can't change anything. Nothing can be changed in the last 48 hours. Maybe a little bit of skill work. You're not going to change your fitness. You don't want to change your flexibility. If you're a little hurting or sore, that's okay. You've been a little hurting and sore all training block. Your body knows how to deal with that. Yeah, and I'm mostly speaking to static stretching, folks, by the way, where you just get into a position and you sit in it and you just sit in it and you just keep stretching those insertions and muscle bellies to the point where they're just this like sad, non-responsive rubber band. That's not going to play well on race day. I just to reiterate, I know I'm being redundant, but like whatever dynamics you typically do, fine. Static stretching in your normal routine can be very beneficial for just keeping things open. That's fine. But when it comes to cramming it in before big events, huge mistake. I'd rather you not do anything, including dynamics, nothing for two days leading in versus going and, and cramming a bunch of it. And you're going to be way better off by doing absolutely nothing on the mobility front a few days leading into a race. I'm sure somebody will get mad at me for saying that, but that's a rock I'll die on. Go ahead. Or don't, don't die on it, but make a stand there. I'm staying. And then with today's new practices, how many times do you hear an athlete come in and say, well, you know, to get extra rested and recovered and really get my legs back into shape, I went and did cryo for the first time Thursday night. Like, well, you shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Like, cryo isn't inherently bad, but you don't know if it's good for you yet. Have you done a quality day ever within 24 to 48 hours of having cryo? If not, then you shouldn't have done it. Or I really have my, went and got dry needling on my hip for the first time. I think I'm going to feel great. Like, maybe. Or maybe your hip's going to lock up on you. Right. You don't know what's going to happen. Like you can't go and get one of these new agey practices done because you see professional athletes. Oh, I went and got cupping the day before a race. Well, you should have tried it three days, three weeks out before your last big workout to make sure that you're going to respond just fine. So the more new fancy practices there are out there, uh, the more it is tempting to try to cram something in. But you're just just don't cram. Yeah, and I guess that's that's I guess with going without saying, nothing new before race day or on race day that you haven't done. You're speaking to that as well, Um, which we've spoken about in the past. You want to know a humorous one? Of course. Uh, Back in the day, uh, Spartan added drug testing clauses to their their pro fields for the first time during the national series. And we were out in Breckenridge, and one of their sponsors for the events was – like doing these pre-race IV infusions of things that will help you handle altitude better. And this oh, guy God. came up to me. He's like, I'm going to do great tomorrow. I just went and got my infusion. I'm like, well, you also just broke the, the rules. So <laughs> let's, hope that, uh, let's hope that you don't go around telling everyone that. He was just so proud of himself. I just got my, and I forgot it was. It was like some booster IV something. But you can't have IVs within, what is it, 24 or 36 hours pre or post uh, competition 
outside of uh, for medical emergencies. Otherwise, your results are invalidated. And he's like, just chest out. Guess what I got? Like he's wearing a uh-huh. sticker. I failed a drug test today. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Is that the race where you went out there and were were real sick and you ended up blowing up? Was it that race or was it? No, this that? was uh, this was the year prior where you were in the I, podium. I took fourth. I missed the podium. You were in podium position. All I had to do was beat Ryan Atkins. Down the last 1,200 meter descents, and I had the final podium spot. Easy breezy. Pull that off. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> I had a good race, though. It was my yeah. first time I beat John Albin that day. Nice, dude. Did he miss a spear? Details. No one really remembers. I don't. All right. So you had overstretching and cramming things in. Yep. I'm going to do one here. Okay. Bad weather. Can't work out. People who will say, hey, wasn't able to get my workout in. It was pouring rain like oh yeah was it was it pouring (laughs) really was it a was it a downpour (laughs) so why didn't you get your workout in oh my goodness it was coming down cats and dogs yeah was it so why didn't you work out (laughs) what's gonna happen on race day when it rains how do you feel about people wait so is this a misconception or is this just like a shut you shut up yeah i think it's a misconception that you can't get you can't get positive work done you can't accomplish something if the weather is adverse like, oh, the storm kicked up. We had a winter storm come through. We had 20 mile per hour winds. You know it was below zero? Ooh, nice. But I know Kirk did a 10-mile temple this morning in it, and he's 30 degrees colder than you. That's right, I did. So it's not about, like, you know, measuring your junk against who's tougher or whatever. But it is about are we looking for excuses or are we teaching to the test? If you don't care about racing or performance, then yeah, skip your workout. But the weather doesn't have to cooperate on race day. In fact, it often seems to know when race day is coming. For a while, there's a running joke in the OCR world that if you have a drought, bring Spartan Race in because it's going to dump on you. (laughs) And if Mm. it's been raining all week, bring Spartan in. It's going to be 150 degrees on race day. Whatever hasn't been happening, it's just going to pop up if OCR comes to town. And you're going to have the worst conditions possible, which means you need to have a callus built up to that. But also adjacent to that, you need to understand that your lactate threshold doesn't care if it's precipitating. Your anaerobic system doesn't care if it's hot or cold. Those things that you're working on, getting work in, they happen regardless or possibly even irregardless of what the weather's doing. Well, yeah, and I think people get in their own heads about their metrics being affected. They're like, I was going to go do my 400-meter repeats outside, but it was 30-mile-an-hour winds, and I said, screw it, and I did them on the treadmill because my ego can't take the fact that my pacing is going to be affected by the adverse weather. And that's where you have to have enough confidence in the fact that like it doesn't like we're working systems, we're not working speeds for the most part in general in training, which is a big misconception. We really are working systems versus pacing or speeds. And I know that's like a hard concept to wrap your mind around because all we do is talk times. What time did you run? What pace did you run? But in workouts, we're training systems. We're not training pacing. You could argue me on that, but I think that's another rock I could die on. And so um, point being is getting out in that weather, and even if it impacts you negatively, uh, pacing-wise, system work is important. As long as you have the confidence in your fitness to know that, hey, my quarters are going to be a little slow today, or my tempo run's going to suck going into the wind, or that rain is maybe going to affect my metrics, but it's not going to deter my confidence because I understand the conditions affected 
my pacing, but the appropriate systems were worked. We, me, me, and you just had a talk about this yesterday, two days ago. Uh, I've been hotboxing myself on my Nordic track in my workout room with my space heater, and the calibration's also way off. Like I told you, the paces I was running at, and you laughed at me. It's actually what happened, if you recall. Mm-hmm. It made me feel good finally. It's the first time you've told me a workout, and I thought, oh, I could do that. <laughs> well, it has to be off. It really does. But I don't For care. Sure. I'm in 80 to 90 degrees in my stupid workout room on a treadmill that when it says three miles an hour is really going three and a half, let's say, at 30%. It is so far off. It's unbelievable. And I just don't care. Like, whatever. I'm going to go run at 2.5 miles an hour at 30%. Yeah, guys, you can run at 2.5 miles an hour at 30%, by the way. And I'm just going to be like, okay, well, I'm confident enough in my process that like I don't care what the treadmill says or the pacing is because I know what it's doing for me. So I've had to practice that myself, which I know I'm kind of taking a tangent to what your argument was, but I'm talking about now working out on a treadmill. No, it's which all is, part of that. You get what I'm saying. Yeah, it's all part of that. It, th- there's really only one person that needs to avoid bad weather workouts, and that is the track runner who's doing overspeed work, who needs precise speed because you're trying to hit a certain velocity in order to incite certain changes in you but out like a hundred meter dash runner probably doesn't need to be out and doing fly 30s when there's a 30 mile per hour headwind nor should he be doing it with a 30 mile per hour tailwind because he's probably gonna hurt his hamstrings or something like that but outside of that how many of those are listening to us like you're a miler who's trying to do 400 meter race pace work and you just can't do it for 400 because there's going to be a crazy headwind then maybe getting on a treadmill is the best thing to do but there's just so few instances and and if you don't do it you don't know how you're going to react in those those situations and you don't know how your gear is going to react and and you might just love it cassie uh who we had on our podcast well like six weeks ago now maybe more than that she's a great interview by the way i love that conversation yeah cassie you did great well cassie just had one of these as everyone who listened to it knows, she's coming back from um, from giving birth to her first child. She's training for an ultra, and we were doing a baby downhill day. And she was scheduled to do a stair workout. And she said, hey, it's raining. Uh, can we push this to the next day? And I, and I just messaged back something like, might rain on race day. Let's test our gear. And she laughed right away and said, yeah, you're probably right. I'm going to go do it. And she got back. She said, I had such a fun time. That was so fun to do in the rain. The descents were a little sketchier, but it made me focus. And she got it done and she realized, hey, I like doing this workout in the rain. And now next time it happens, she already has a preconditioned response, which is joy. Ooh, I get to go do this now in the rain rather than the person who has a preconditioned response, which is we don't do work in this weather. Yeah. And when you end up going out in inclement weather, whether it's really, really hot or windy or rainy and cold or snowy, all of that crap. Um, what ends up happening is you get into it and you're finally into the rhythm and you start to find it being like very novel. And those are the sessions that you end up remembering years down the road. It's really interesting. Like most of them I remember didn't happen on a sunny, calm day. Sure. I maybe remember some metrics from some nice weather days where my body was ready, but the ones that stand out to me are those crazy ones that like I wear as a badge of honor and a point of pride. And I can have dozens of crappy weather workouts that I will never forget because they were so unique that I would do them 10 times over again. Even if it's just for that, this training blends together. It's all a blur eventually. And there's very few highlight points on the timeline that will stick. 
And those always stick. And I think that's cool. It's very. I saw an athlete that I coached in high school about a year ago. And while we were chatting, you get back to chatting races and work. I said, do you remember that day where we had those gale force winds and uh, the sprinters and the jumpers all went in the gym and we ran our intervals outside? I was like, I do. Because it was the craziest day. It was some. It was well over 30 mile per hour winds and we were, we had to run single file and we didn't even bother doing it on the track. We did it on a road and we'd go out 800 meters, take our three minute rest, come back. And we were going 620 pace out, 520 pace back, mm-hmm. just running the same effort. Cause it was so windy and people's shirts were ballooning out. And one person had a wind coat on and it looked like he was like the Michelin man. It, it, it's all of us. This was what, 10, 12 years ago, seared into our minds. Probably could only tell you six or seven workouts we did back then, but that was one of them because it was such a ridiculous day and everyone had a blast, even though it sucked. So you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. My first steeplechase workout, I never raced the steeplechase, but we had a 30, 40 mile an hour gust of wind day on the track. We're doing thousand meter repeats with four barriers a lap, I think it was, <laughs> or five. And oh my God, I was running so slow and terrible. And I'll never forget that day. And I would do it all over again if I had to with terrible hurtling form into the wind it was like i might as well have been going backwards it was amazing if you ever want to feel terrible in a workout interval workout just go over barriers oh steeplechase workouts and 400 meter hurdle workouts are the most miserable workouts under the sun because you can't feel good or fast doing it it's just it's crazy how much just that little rhythm breaker of barrier makes you feel like garbage the entire time yeah, if you've never done it, there was when you watch a steeplechase race, nobody out there gets it unless you've tried it. And I've only trained it a handful of times. The respect I have for steeplechasers goes above and beyond the respect I have for any other runner because the pain that that race induces is like if you were racing a 5K but you had to trip twice a lap, that's the equivalent. <laughs> that's how it feels. Like yeah. getting back up to speed, trying like the, it takes out of you, like go run a 5k and trip twice every quarter mile. That's what it feels like. It's It's just wild. Um, okay. Uh, is there a point? Do you think there's a point in which the weather should win? Are we going to, we going to humanize yeah. this a little bit for sure. What is it? Yeah. Lightning, lightning wins out. It's just not worth messing with. You don't mess with lightning when you're on the mountain, respect the, the weather super hot or super cold not worth trying to do anything quality hmm. i see trails or roads if you know you're gonna end up on your ass that's not uh, yeah. good um, ice can mess with you okay should we move to the next one you want to go you have the list um look at me you, have the list. I, you always hold the power in your hands i don't q a questions and all that i don't i generally try to structure the framework of our episodes and kick to you for the initial knowledge, and I bet clean up. That's how this the system works. I keep us moving forward. You fill in everything in between, and I just sort of interject. There's a somewhere. power imbalance in our relationship. No, and I know that. the viewers, listeners know it, and I need you to respect that. <laughs> uh-huh. No, what I find is funny. Hold on. This is a side, this is a side tangent. So I think that I am, as I interrupt, I think I'm better at keeping us on track than you are. Okay. I just think that I keep us on track. Thousand percent so. But what's funny about that is that I remember for perspective going back and listening to Obstacle Dominator when you were co hosting with Benny and you were the one mm-hmm. keeping that train on the tracks. And I just think that's very funny to me 
because you don't keep the train on this tracks very often. You will, and you can, but like to put you on obstacle dominator with Benny and be the one to keep it on the tracks had to be like a very difficult task. And you were responsible for that. And I find that very funny now that we're in this a few years. How'd you feel about that? Yeah, I don't know how I feel about it, honestly, but it's true. It's like a little kid who is so well behaved at school and then they get home in their safe environment and they just got to be wild for a little bit. I wonder if that's (laughs) me. I'm just like this little terrier hauling ass around the yard, just like tearing it up. Whipping circles. I, I trust this place. (laughs) yeah you're here you're safe you're stable you've got this i'm just gonna just gonna live my best life here i don't worry about rules i don't worry about tangents i'm just chasing every little animal i see when we record you got the podcast zoomies maybe Maybe i need to be more cognizant no i think we have a good thing going (laughs) we have a great thing going i'm just i don't know why that just came up or why i felt like saying but if you're saying that you're me that's not, what I'm, that's not what I'm saying. It reframes whether I'm wearing enough feathers. <laughs> your your earrings aren't dangly enough. No, okay, continue. Okay. I like Benny well, too, by now the way. that I realize that I love him. Benny's a good dude. I love Continue. Benny. He'll forever be my boy. I'm just going to say something, and then you react to it. And that is some version of this right here. I think I identified what went wrong in the race. I just didn't get enough sleep the night before. Or we went out to this place and they didn't have the dinner I wanted. I didn't nail my nutrition for breakfast the morning before a race. You know, I didn't have my pre-workout. Or I think I just need a different supplement and then I'm going to be set. And you want me to say what to this? Because I can, I can roll my eyes, but I can't, I can't roll my eyes audibly. <laughs> When an athlete comes to you and say, you know what, I, I, what went wrong is just from the bat I was off because we went to this Italian place and this pasta just sat in my gut and I, it was just like a rock in there all race where I just, I forgot my pre-workout and I just, I was off. I, if I, if I could just dial in my nutrition better, I would have had a much different race. Yeah, there, um, there's uh, explanations and there's excuses, and every single one of those mm-hmm. falls into the excuses category. Um, in my opinion, uh, anything that generally happens within 48 hours of your race, 24 for sure, null and void, doesn't matter. You get two hours of sleep the night before your race, great. You could still go run the best race of your life. You didn't get the perfect food because your flight was in late and you had to eat airport food and all those other things. like. Well, how many workouts have you done where your kid kept you up all night and you had a tummy ache that morning? You still got it done, right? Like, I think you need to be able to perform under any situation, under any circumstances. If you're leading with those things, you're just, you're delusional. Uh, you're, you're creating a false sense of comfort for your poor performance, which isn't valid. So that's, I don't know. Did I answer your question? Yeah, for sure. It's it's one of those, like, we understand why you're making that statement. Of course. But you have to understand that that is a crippling statement. It's giving you a crutch to lean on, and then that crutch is going to be there for you next race, and someone's going to keep coming up and kicking that crutch out from underneath you. And that person is the race. The race doesn't care. It's It's so limiting because then it's limiting you to having things all needing to go perfect in order for you to race well. And when you create that narrative in your head... That's a tough way to go race to race because oftentimes things don't go perfect. And you, Bracken, 
Self-admittedly, I don't know if our listeners will remember, but you had to put your left sock on before your right one. You had to hang your, your shorts up perfectly the night before. You had to eat your last little bite of Cliff Bar 47 minutes before the start gun went off. You had to do all of these rituals and routines in order to have a chance at racing your best. And you outlined that once, and this is back in your high school days. And how did that go for you? Terribly. I was controlled by that rather than like reinforced by it. And the greatest thing outside of finding this new career and finding you and all these people in my life now that running post-collegiately gave me, the greatest thing that continuing to compete did, what it gave me was peace, confidence, and just calm beforehand. Eventually I did it so many times and had so many, once you start flying to races or driving long distances to races, your system is blown up. You're confronted with the fact that I have, I have, there are flaws in my everything must be perfect system. And flights are delayed and everything's closed but the vending machine. And then you just have to decide, am I the person that is going to show up carrying all this or am I just going to put my visor down, clamp it shut, block out the world and get to work? And I can't say that I've been perfect at that, but I have probably a higher percentage of good races when things go wrong before the race than when things go right. To the point where last week on the way to Braden's racing, there was a car on fire on the freeway with a 36-minute uh, delay. And we arrived late, and he missed qualifying lap and didn't get any warm-ups, and he had to start from the back of the field. And Lisa said to him, your dad would win this race now simply because something went wrong and allowed him to do well. And she didn't say it in a way like, we expect you to win. But she's like, this is what happens when things happen poorly for Bracken. It's like taking the chains off. Like, I don't have to worry about anything. That It's all off the rails. It's a free-for-all. Let's just go have fun. That's what can happen. Sometimes your breakthroughs come in in weird moments. I remember this. Um, I mentioned this on the podcast once or twice, but the Minnesota Mountain Series, which is an oxymoron of a statement in itself. Um when they held us because they held us because we couldn't get in through ticketing right away. And then it was like, we were going to have a delay or we weren't. And then they're like, nope, we're going in 15 minutes. And none of us had done anything yet because we just got in. And you just stood there, kept chatting with people. You were there like bullshitting. You weren't like panic. Like I like, dropped my shit, ran over, started something right away. And you were like cool as a cucumber. Just like, that's fine. I can finish my conversation first. And I looked at you and thought that was a terrible idea. And secondly, uh, you ended up racing really well if it wasn't for going off course with the bucket. So you figured it out. And so I watched you do that firsthand. I've never been terrible about that. Like, I think I have a probably middle of the road relationship with like pre-race things going wrong and still running well. I can shut it out fairly well. But I just wanted to ask you then, because I know you were so OCD with your pre-race routines beforehand. How did you break through that? I mean, one, it was just reps. I was racing 20 to 30 times per year for the first three years out of college. So I got a lot of practice doing it. And when you are not rich and you're traveling places, this was before I had my my Spartan deal and the Reebok deal and all that stuff, you're traveling on a budget. And when you travel on a budget, you are the first person to be affected by anything that goes wrong. You're the first person bumped off a flight. When things are delayed, you struggle the most. You don't have the first class lounge. Your, your seat is the first one to be uh, compromised. 
you arrive, you're already flying red eyes. So if you're delayed, you're overnight or you arrive in the rental car counter is already closed. And now you have to hitchhike in the middle of Washington state to get to your hotel the night before. Like these are all the things that happen. And after a while, you just realize like, I'm taking my hands off the wheel. When, when you're in the middle of something crazy, the harder you grip the wheel, the more it just frustrates you that you can't control the wheel. And so luckily I just had to give in. And then that's when I started doing all those weird things I used to talk about where I'd intentionally eat like crap the night before a big workout or I'd have caffeine or something at like 8 p.m. so that I wouldn't be able to fall asleep that night. And so I'd have to stay up till one or two or three in the morning, not able to sleep, start to drift off and then wake back up like caffeine does to you because that's what happens the day before big races. And when I would go to a big race and I'd kind of just fail because the night before I got 45 minutes of uninterrupted sleep, I realized, all right, if I can't beat it, join them. I'm going to start doing this in training. And I know it sounds crazy and it used to sound crazy when I talk about those things, but that's the way I beat it. I don't know if you can beat it. You just join them. If I, if I can just do 50% of my quality workouts in a really weird state, then I'm fine. Yeah. And if you spend a, a long period of time traveling the day before a race, which involves a flight and then racing a bunch when travels involved the day before a race, like you're just going to run into plenty of situations through exposure yeah. that way. Um, okay. I was curious there. Should we move to the next one? No. Nope. Yeah. Last story though, Kirk, I don't know if you remember this. When I ran my first trail 50 K, I had a decent race. Mm-hmm. And I woke up that morning and I'm getting ready in the dark because Lisa and the kids are sleeping. And I realized I only packed my recovery formula, not my fuel for the 50 K. Oh. And so I fueled with recovery powder <laughs> for the race. I was so mad at myself. And I thought it's like 80% the same, right? It's going to be fine. And then I was sick to my stomach for like 20 hours afterwards. And I think it was from all the protein and fat in it, trying to drink it. And it was like 94 degrees and... I'm sure. Yeah. You could digest it. Yeah. So anyway, I, but it worked. Like if that would have happened on my first race ever, I may not have started. Right. I may have been scrambling all over. And this was in the middle of no Baraboo, Wisconsin. You're not finding sustainably <laughs> any of those stores. <laughs> so I just use recover. Like those are the kind of things you can get through. If your life doesn't depend on everything being perfect. I miss that Recover Elite. I don't. I don't have any Endure Elite products anymore. Um, but God, that that Recover Elite was some good stuff. I'd mix it with ice and blend it up and sip on that in the summer. Oh, mm-hmm. miss that. The stuff. orange was always the best. So good. I buy a tub every other month or so for Lisa. Oh, you still do? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You want to talk calorie burning? Yeah, let's talk calorie burning. Because I, I feel like I've I've been on the soapbox for like forty five minutes straight. So why don't you hop up on a soapbox here? It doesn't feel like that to me at all. I feel real preachy and judgy today. So I, we should just say that we're we're guilty of all of this. Yeah. And we've made these mistakes ourselves. This. We've lived this. <laughs> I've got, I'm 40 years old. I probably talk about that too much. And I started endurance training when I was in eighth grade and every year since. How old was I in eighth grade? I was 13. I turned 14 in eighth grade. So let's say 14 to 40. How many years is that? 26 years of putting on my running shoes and making millions of mistakes. 26 years of never giving it up, never calling it quits for a couple years, never straying too far from center for 26 years. The amount of mistakes I've made along the way, everything we're talking about, I've done 
a hundred times over. This isn't us judging because we we will be judgeth upon ourselves because we've done it. So does that make you feel better? Because that's the truth. Let's talk about calorie burning, huh? Let's do it. All right, somebody asked me this morning if this morning an actual in the gym client. Do they listen? Uh, no, he doesn't. I don't think uh, he's chimed in, but I don't expect him to hear this. Bryce. His name's Bryce. In case anybody's wondering. It's <laughs> a real Bryce. I'm Bryce. Um, he said, will I burn the same amount of calories? He was on vacation recently, and he had done a lot of walking. Like, I'm walking. Not even for fitness, just, like, getting to and fro, or whatever that saying is. To and fro? Is that a thing? To and from? Yeah, to, to and, and fro. fro. I just can't add the M to the end of from. Like, to too and much from work. sounds weird now. But to and fro doesn't really make to sense. To and fro anyways. is a bit posh. Yeah, but anyways, he's walking. Whatever. Anyways, he asks, well, if I walk five miles, am I burning the same amount of calories if I ran five miles? Is it the same? Like, I, I just assume I'm, like, doing a great job. It's time on feet, time on feet. Well, yes and no, Bryce. I don't mind calling him out. Um, what, what, we're, what we're missing here, and we've been sold this from the day one, is fat burning zone and this is the area in which you should work and da 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 and this is how you're gonna lose weight the fastest and this is gonna be the best for you by doing low grade aerobic work even walking or very easy cardio that's gonna put you right in that sweet spot in that fat burning zone and you're that's the best way to do it for caloric expenditure even that is so wrong there is a a quote and it's Fat burns in the flame of carbohydrates. And there is nothing that could be more true than that. A hard five-mile run is going to dip into your your glycogen stores more than a five-mile walk or an easy five-mile run, which is going to more dip into your fat stores in the moment. In the moment, this is. But the post-exercise oxygen consumption or the post-exercise burn, as soon as that heart rate comes down, let's say you went for a five-mile threshold run versus a five-mile walk, you may trivially burn just a few more calories in your threshold over time because that exertion is a little bit higher. But your post-exercise oxygen consumption is through the roof for hours and hours and hours. And at the end of said different workouts a five mile walk let's just say for conversational sake is going to burn 500 calories hard stop when you stop walking 500 done your five mile threshold run which has your heart rate sitting at 170 let's say you burn five to six hundred in that one let's just say a little bit higher because of the output much shorter time investment you may net another 500 burnt over the next day as your body metabolizes the damage that you have caused and that mm-hmm. is way more powerful than putting on your shoes and going for a walk on caloric expenditure and when you are metabolizing damage you're just eating through fat stores you're just re- relying on your s- supplies to help regenerate and even at the end of that threshold run the day later you have burned more fat because of that threshold run than if you just went for a five-mile chill walk. It is such a load of crap that we have been sold because in the moment, walking's burning more fat, percentage-wise. But when it's all said and done, harder work wins every single time. 
There's a soapbox. How's that? I want you to say that quote again. I want to bask in the glow of it. Yes, the quote is, fat burns in the flame of carbohydrates. There it is. You like that? Every single time I travel, because that's most of the time that I'm in a a gym setting, in a weight room or a cardio room. It's generally when I travel. True. And there's these machines, and then it's got this little person on it, and it shows fat burning zone, target zone. (laughs) I, I can't help but every time think, do I not know this? (laughs) Oh, shoot. And then I have to tell myself, no, just because they made a really good looking sticker and slapped it on this very expensive piece of machinery, (laughs) it does not mean it's right. It doesn't mean that there's this magic fat burning zone. There's a zone that pound for pound, energy expenditure for energy expenditure, punches above its weight in what you burn in the moment. Sure. Like at 50% of max heart rate, you're burning let's say 80% of what you burn at a hundred percent heart rate, like pound for pound. That's really, that's a, that's a great spot to be in, even though those numbers aren't correct, but then it stops. You're right. It's like being on a fan bike. If you just touch it a little bit and stop moving, it stops spooling. If you crank that sucker up, it might spool for another 30 seconds after you hop off. And that's the way this works doesn't mean you can crank hard every day and it doesn't mean that that even correlates to fitness but if you're talking about caloric expenditure the fat burning zone is like every bit of as strong as a myth as back in like what 40s or 50s when they said cigarettes are good for you mm-hmm. like it's just not it's not scientifically accurate and it's been proven wrong but i always have a second like hesitation when i see it on a machine like huh, maybe there's something to that so if that's happening to us and this is our profession you know it's getting everyone yeah the harder you pedal your bike the longer you coast yep and that would be post-exercise oxygen consumption in a nutshell and um really i mean one of my pet peeves about the fat burning zone which i didn't really plan on talking about that specifically but it just it's where my mind went is it's really an excuse for people not to work very hard <laughs> When they get on the machine and somebody who really needs it, somebody who gets on the elliptical three times a week and is like, that's all they're doing. Like you should be laying the hammer down one or two of these sessions. If you want to get the most out of your three days a week. And yet they go and they just drone away while watching reruns of the office or watching Vanderpump rules at 110 heart rate, staying in their fat burning zone, thinking they're doing the best thing for themselves because they're in their fat burning zone and they can watch Vanderpump rules at the same time. Wrong. You're just getting using that as an excuse to go easy. Step it up. That's it. I love it. Next one. Next one. Can't do quality workouts in the morning because I don't have enough time to get my full breakfast and pre-race routine in. Do you want to start this one? I know I brought it up. But. I'm happy. I'm, I like listening to your your sultry tones when you get on a on a heater here. Um, well, when I had mentioned this before we started recording, I knew you agreed with me as if you had heard this before. Like, I have to eat before my quality session or I... I can't possibly get a quality session done in the morning because I have to roll right out of bed and do it. And I see a lot of people avoiding those things because they say they don't have enough time to do their pre-workout routine or they're limited. And you can't possibly do a a hard workout fasted. Can you, Bracken? Heaven forbid. Nope. No, that would be... Nope, can't do it. Oh, that would be just terrible for you, right? Oh, how could you ever perform? Yeah, you're going to... 
go into catabolic shock. You might not get home. Could be that bad. Wrong. Wrong. And you know what? That's true on day one. (laughs) On day one. You're probably going to feel like, I can't do this. I feel terrible. We should have capped off glycogen stores from eating the day before. Unless you're preceding a huge three-hour long run or a big, long, metabolically damaging session, you could be in a little bit of like glycogen depletion in the morning. But for the most part, if you eat a dinner and a lunch and maybe a snack or whatever it is, like you are pretty much stored up. And some of you have blood sugar issues, and that's different if you're dealing with prediabetes or any of that. We're not talking about that. If you live in a first-world nation, especially North America— I don't think you have to worry about glycogen stores for the most part. Our diets are going to take care of that. That's a fair assumption. Um, So, I mean, when we interviewed Ryan Kent, he talked about it. Like when he was, and if I don't know if he still is, but he was getting up so early, he'd put a cup of coffee in in his belly and get to work within like 20 minutes of waking up. And so even if you're somebody who's like, I got to eat a little something, which is fine. I get some people need to because it makes your tummy feel better, whatever. Do you know that if you eat a banana, Bracken, it is out of your stomach and into your lower GI within less than 30 minutes on an empty stomach. If you take a pure form of sugar, carbohydrate, whether it's natural or not natural, within 30 minutes, that's out of your upper and into your lower. That cannot impact you negatively. Eat a Lara bar. It's basically all sugar, for example. You could have that as you roll out of bed. Put a cup of coffee down the hatch. Take 20 minutes to warm up, and there is no way, in my opinion, that can negatively impact your gut while you're running if you choose the right foods. If you think you need to have like three eggs or something that's full of protein and fat, that's a real bad choice. But clean, simple carbohydrates, poof, like that. It's like they burn in flames just like kindling does in a fire. They're consumed and digested in a second. Point being, even if you feel like you need that, which I don't think you do, rolling out of bed, cup or two of coffee or your pre-workout is going to have you ready to go. Do your proper warm-up. You can roll out of bed. Yeah, you might have a bathroom break in there once the coffee hits, so just plan for that. Whether you got a spot you pull off the road or you dip into your bathroom before you leave. But point being, from a productivity standpoint, you are 100% capable of running fasted in the morning on an empty stomach. For me, it'd be a cup of coffee to get my caffeine intake up, and I'm going to be good to go. Um, you don't need it. You're, you're topped off on the glycogen stores, most likely. So it's a misconception. Um, you're not taking away from your ability to perform or the gains from that workout uh, whatsoever. You're so. right. And this is one of those things that we've lived. We we have just gone through periods of time where that was our window. When For the first, I think, three years that I was trying to run – quote unquote professionally, which was in a small niche sport. So it, it, don't let's not read into it and say, oh, he thinks he's a professional athlete. I was always very aware of my standing in the running universe. But in the small sport of OCR, I was trying to make my living doing it. And at the beginning, I was teaching a little as well. So maybe it wasn't full professional, but it wasn't full professional anyway. I ran at 5.30 or 6 a.m. every morning. And I am not a coffee drinker, and this is before I did anything with caffeine. So my morning routine consisted of getting up, going to the bathroom, and sometimes I'd drink like half a cup of water. And that's how I did all my training Monday through Friday. And at the time, I was always two to three quality workouts per week, which meant I had one to two quality sessions during the week. And so they weren't baby workouts. Like I I did a progression where I went... I think three by two mile in the morning with nothing 
inside of my gut whatsoever because I just made sure to have a good amount at dinner the night before. Now, early on, it's a struggle. Your first day feels like death. Your first week feels very sluggish. But your body is crazy good at adapting to just about any stress or stimulus you can ever subject it to. And this is no different. So you're going to have hunger pangs early on. That's going to happen. You're going to feel like that gnawing ache in the middle of your gut when you're doing a 35-minute easy run and you haven't eaten. But eventually, you can do full workouts. I would go up to 90 minutes in those mornings of hard work without doing anything. Sometimes I would take a gel if I was going to go over 90 minutes. So is it ideal? No, probably not. For some people, I think it is. It it probably could be. I was pretty good at the time. (laughs) But three by two mile slightly depleted is a heck of a lot better than not doing three by two mile. Or doing it in 90 degree heat after work when you're going to be rendered a little less effective. I'd still take fasted coffee morning over 6 p.m., 90 degrees. Um, Unless, of course, you have a race that's going to be in 90 degrees, which I did post about recently on my Instagram. Yes, you did. So, yes, it can be done. It just won't feel like it at first. This reminds me of our buddy uh, Mike Ferguson. Mike, I know you listen still from time to time, and I'll be seeing you in a a bit at my wedding, Mike. Um, But uh, a number of times, like him and I traveled together often, uh, for races and he would we would get like pizza the night before sometimes or whatever and he would just fill his belly he did second dinner didn't he but dude that dude ate and know what happened in the morning he goes i'm still full i'm not going to eat anything and he would have his coffee show up to the i remember multiple races where he showed up after being up for two plus hours before the race and he raced well every time he did that i'm like dude's gonna have a bad day and then he'd go and just rip every time so, and he raced on an empty stomach. So point being his glycogen stores were clearly depleted from the extra large pizza he ate all by himself the night before. And it, it bled into the next day's race. I saw it happen over and over again. That's a race folks. Ryan Kent and I, before city field in 2018, we roomed together and we went to Olive Garden on a real nice classy evening together. And we, we ate our dinner and brought a bunch home, including some of those breadsticks you get to take with you. And uh, we didn't discuss this. And at like 9, 930, we both kind of like looked at each other like, I'm going to eat again. The other person's like, oh, yeah, I'm about to too. And we both had a second dinner. It was just our top off meal. I didn't realize he always does it. I always do it before races. It's I eat dinner at 6 or 7. And then about 9, 930, I eat another half of a meal. Because you never know what the race morning is going to provide to you. New York City, you might have crazy traffic and you got to go. You get to these venues, the Portage Online might be super long and you're dealing with other things. You don't know what's going to happen. You might be under the gun. You might accidentally sleep in. Your stomach might just wake up and tell you, you're not putting a bite of anything in your mouth today because I am not going to allow it. So yeah, second dinner is very, very useful and it can be used tactfully in order to get past that first initial stage of I'm just achingly hungry in the morning i'm certainly not promoting underfueling. obviously it's very important but this unique instance um i just think it can be done more effectively yeah. than people believe so um looks like you're looking at your list again and we should just say that we're not we've had people on here like anthony kunkel and hopefully in a little bit we have joshua reed coming on uh they're huge proponents of of eating windows and fasted running and mm-hmm. 
I mean, they'll take it to the extreme with ketones and whatnot. We're not necessarily that that person, but we also don't think it's this huge, dangerous uh, imposition to you. Hmm. All right. Well, you want to do one more and then call this thing? I got up to 20 minutes if we need it, okay. but whatever. Yeah. All right. So I have had um, this happen over the course of my time working with athletes, and it bugs me. 50% of the time, which is with athlete A, and with athlete B, I love it. And that is, I didn't get Wednesday's quality session in, so I did it Friday right before my Saturday quality session. And with athlete A, it drives me nuts. And with athlete B, I love it. I'm like, good for you, Kirk. Can you guess what those two athletes are? Hmm. Is it a clear this is line? an unfair question. <laughs> is it a clear line for yeah, you? Yeah, very clear line. Um, I would say the athlete in which it's an exception to do this, give them a fist bump. I think the athlete who always is rejigging their schedule for some godly unknown reason, which I have a handful and you know who you are, then it's like, are you kidding me? You're just taking away from the other. I think it's if it, and I know this isn't your answer. You're going to give me some more specific answer on like personality mm-hmm. type probably. But, um, for me, it's just like I roll my eyes if I see somebody had to push their Tuesday to Wednesday, but then Wednesday they just didn't feel good, so they pushed it to Thursday, and now they shouldn't. You get what I'm saying. So, right. what are you? What That's are your types? Answer. What is? What's your answer? Are you are you training to get to like get over something, like lose weight, get back on schedule, progress towards something, build up fitness, or are you trying to perform at a race? Those are my two. If you are just, if you've struggled your whole life with maintaining your physique or your weight or your fitness or your motivation and you missed a day and you just jammed two back to back because that gets you back on schedule and that's what you need, I'm like, heck yeah, good for you. Because I know that feeling of waking up on day two. It's not fun and you did it. You are better for it. Now we're going to recover easy a few days, but good for you. And let's not let it happen again. But the athlete who's trying to perform, it just drives me nuts because you didn't get. 100% of the benefit from either workout, but you crammed it in so that you could check a box on your schedule. And races are not won by checking boxes. They're won by checking boxes appropriately. Simply checking them does not tell the whole tale. So what would you, what, what would you recommend for said athlete? Let's say athlete who cares about performance and they come up with every excuse or explanation in their eyes that things got pushed back or were missed. And now they're stuck with two things that matter within two or three days of each other. Like, what do you, what do you tell them then? That getting it done by Saturday was a pre-existing condition of the current climate. Mm-hmm. As soon as that current climate changed, we now have to reestablish what our goals are or what our time frame is. That's it. Those two workouts existed in a relationship to each other and the relationship to the preceding and um, the workouts that are going to come in the week or two afterwards. That relationship does not change even if our time frame changes. So instead of just screwing up the relationship, let's change our time frame. It's, it's, it's like non-negotiable for me that if we have a training plan built on progressive overload and workouts chaining from one to the next, then we can't just remove pieces of the chain and relink them. We have to add pieces into the chain when we miss. You have to add extra days in between. We cannot remove and reattach. They do not work that way. They're non-compatible. Yeah, I think uh, making up for missed workouts or making up for lost time is one of the single worst ways to approach that situation when it happens. The cramming yeah. it in. No, we, we draw a hard line in the sand. We stop. We reassess. 
and we rejig moving forward. Either we prioritize the most important of the two workouts and we get right back on track next week, or we say these are both important. Suddenly your long run doesn't happen Saturday, it happens Sunday, but then we pivot appropriately the following week and push that next quality day back and we find a way to make it right. But what we don't do is just throw it all at the wall and hope it all sticks. Uh, that doesn't that does not fly. And then that no, and then it bleeds into longer recovery and it affects your week later and pretty soon you're working at 80% for everything and you didn't reach the pinnacle of what we were hoping to get out of any of those workouts except maybe your first one because you you should be fresh cuz you messed up beforehand. So um yeah, I guess those are my thoughts on that. Yeah, that that's just it. It's it's the difference between exercising and training. It's it's just right down there. Are we working on exercising right now and establishing patterns and and building our mental and physical toughness, or are we training towards a goal? And as soon as we're training towards a goal, it's a sequential process, and you just can't remove the steps. There are some workouts that you can remove out and just say, hey, we're moving past it. We don't need it. Or you can say, all we really wanted out of that session was this. We're going to make this a split tempo now instead. So we still hit that, but accomplish both sessions. Or you can say, we're going to shorten one of them by 30% and we're going to double today. And you can get them both on Saturday. But simply cram them back to back days is rarely the answer because it's really hard to shortcut the body's recovery and uh, adaptation process. It's just... It doesn't work super well. It'd almost be better to do them on the same day, one morning, one night, and adapt them slightly rather than just say, let's do them back to back and try to hit the first one great and whatever we have left. It's, I don't know. And it sets a bad precedent is really what it does. Like If you don't respect the process, you're going to continually shortcut it. Yep. I agree with that. Should we do maybe one more? Do we have another one on the list? I feel like we discussed more than just these beforehand. Yeah, we have, I just need more speed, which we kind of already discussed in the speed episode. And then we mm-hmm. have the beginning of the race is just too fast. And then I settle in. Hmm. I really come alive after the first few miles, which there are a few people who that seems to be the case no matter what. But it's kind of like the same amount of people who respond well to being a lazy person laying around the day before a race. Mm-hmm. You're the outlier. The slow starter. I don't find my rhythm till halfway right. through. I get my. It can't second. exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like the person that is the slow starter. We'll call them or can't hang early. One, you might just be racing smart, but if truly you feel like you're in over your head early right away, always, and then somehow you settle in and grind and pass a few people, um, I would say we don't even need to ramble. You just go back and listen to our warm up and cool down episode. We did about two years ago and we'll talk you right through that one. Yeah. Your problem isn't the race. Your problem is what you did beforehand. And it's, it goes with that whole, I take the day off before a race to charge up and I dasn't run or run too hard before my race. Cause I don't want to tire Ooh. myself out. It's like grand, my grandfather you hit to and word. fro and dasent in one episode my grandpa always told me i dasent do a lot of things but you dasent yeah you, you dasent run too hard before a race because it'll make you tired before, for the race itself so again you're not it's like another step in not priming your system appropriately so generally the slow starters are not hitting the right systems and working hard enough in their warm-up to have them ready for the effort and most people don't understand that concept for some reason Yeah, I think that there are generally four possible explanations, and the biggest one is warm-up. I just had a conversation with an athlete on a consult 
uh, last week or this week. And I'm going to keep it anonymous, but the, the thing was kind of that same thing. I just, I really struggle for the first five to 10 minutes of a race. And then my legs start to come alive. And I said, all right, what's your warm up like? He said, well, I do, I do an easy run to get my, you know, systems working. And then I do some, uh, some stretching out, some static, some, some range of motion stuff. And then I get to the line and, you know, make sure I'm topped off and ready to go. And I said, well, if I only had one thing I could do before a race, it would be strides or accelerations or a few short reps above race pace. If I could only do one thing, if I only had three minutes to get ready, I would run like three or four good, hard, extended strides and walk back, maybe doing some slight dynamic exercises on the way back each time. And you're doing the two pieces that I would find to be um, expendable if I was under the gun time-wise. So let's just add that one piece in and I guarantee the start feels different. So I think start your warm up is like what probably 80% of the time that's the cause. Most people for some reason seem to want to and I noticed this with a lot of my current athletes which I need to have conversations with some of them about it like warm up 2 miles average heart rate 131 and I look at that and I go all right you're going to be breaching 170 in your workout. That's about to come, but you worked in the 120s for most of your warm up and maybe hit 140 by the end. You haven't even touched the energy system you're going to use in your workout. Your body is that first rep is going to feel terrible. Like people think that they need to keep their warm up in a recovery effort so they don't take away from their workout or their race. And that's a mistake. We actually want to start greasing the groove, priming the systems, getting the heart rate spikes and doing a little work, shunting blood, all of those things. And so, you don't need to keep your heart rate in a recovery zone while warming up. In fact, you want to breach that so you're starting to prime the system. Yeah, you see a ramp. You start slow and easy and get things lubricated, yep. and then you get more dynamic and intense until you are above what will be asked of you in the race. And then it's a reduction down to race intensity and stride when you start. Yeah, exactly. So that stride off the line isn't something new. You felt it already in your warm-up because you run, ran that faster, faster for segments during your warm-up and pickups. Correct. You've had your heart rate high enough that it's not this huge changing of gears to get it up when the race starts. Now, there's a section of people that are just going out too hard, and that's why you feel crappy. Right, you're of just, course. You're, you're overly optimistic about what you can do, or you get caught up in the adrenaline of the race. And you know what I find a good, solid warm-up does? Is it burns off some of that, uh, that adrenaline and optimism. Mm -hmm. You feel like crap during it and it gets some of those chemicals pumping already and you can get rid of some of the unnecessary juices in your system. Dude, I am counting down every second until I can start running during my warm up to start getting some of that <laughs> yes. jitters out of my system. Dude, it is, it allows you to arrive to the start line before the gun goes off, like a bit more relaxed and a bit more confident that you can go out in a controlled pace. It's just like. It does so many things for framing your mind for once the race actually starts. It's grabbing, it's putting your blankie on. Mm. You sit there nervous and uncomfortable and where are my parents? Where's my mom? And then someone hands you your blanket, which is your warm up. You're like, okay, I know this. I'm yes. good to go now. Now visor's down, we're going. Yes. It's freeing. It is freeing. And then there is a type of person who is so slow twitch and so one stride based that 
they can be a very good endurance athlete, but they don't have that get up and go gear or stride naturally. And so firing off the line is just insanely uncomfortable for them until they settle into the stride they're going to use for the rest of the day. That's a real thing. There are people like that. The very ultra-based athletes are going to be extremely uncomfortable to start. And that is fixable through some very fast interval pace work to get accustomed to having a useful, repeatable, efficient stride at that intensity. And it doesn't take a ton of work to do that. You don't have to do big grindy, hate your life sessions. You just, this is like speed sprinkle kind of stuff. Can even teach that. Yep. I agree with that. Um, trying to think if anything else comes to mind, that's of new subject. Do you have anything that pops to your head? Pops in your head? No, no, I'm, I'm very content with this, but speaking of head Kirk, it's a weird segue. Look at mine. Are you seeing this? Mm, little sunburn. I have an arch across the top. You got quite the tan line going on on the noggin. I had a a backwards running head on yesterday. So I have a white band Mm -hmm. where the the strap was. And then the opening leaves a half crescent of burn across here. I can see it. I got fried. I didn't expect to be outside very long. And Lisa and I went for a run and ended up walking the last mile and a half back. And I spent an extra 20 minutes and I just fried my dome in a weird pattern. That'll even itself out in a day or two. Don't you worry. <laughs> For the meantime, I look like a weirdo. You mentioned earlier in the podcast that our body doesn't necessarily like send a lot of blood or nutrients to areas of the body that are unimportant. And I'm just wondering what your body mm-hmm. thinks of your head. <laughs> How what deep you are think? you going? Just saying like it's not healing my head. I don't have a lot of brain activity or the fact that my hair died off early means there's no brain activity happening. More the latter. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, good. Thank you. It was good. It was yeah, a good burn. More, more the latter. A good burn. That's also punny considering. And now that you pointed it out on your forehead, it's very obvious. Yeah, it's so obvious once oh you see goodness. it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you got, you got like a see. white. And then you got this crescent moon of burn. Well, and I have prominent brow. Yeah. And so, so do because I. it sticks out a bit, the sun really hits right there. So with a hat on, that one spot receives direct sun. And then above it, mm. It's the tough part of being bald. Yeah, you got like a nice half circle, half circle burn, half moon burn in that space in your hat. Like the hat I'm wearing, if that were all exposed, if I were bald. But don't you worry, because I'm starting to go, I got white hairs poking in. I was just having a discussion this morning with a couple of guys in my guys uh, strength group this morning, and we were really microanalyzing. And it's like, once you start really looking, like they're in there, man. Oh, man. So you're lucky you don't have to know that. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> Kirk, I had gray in my hair at 12. Hmm. That ain't true. That ain't My ain't aunt true. had the same thing. Really? It was just it was just speckled throughout there early, yeah. So, And I was always told, I think I've said this on here, you either go bald or you go gray. Hmm. People are always like, so yeah, you have some gray hair young. It's fine. You're going to have a thick head of hair your whole life, young man. And I showed them. <laughs> you sure did. That's, yeah, win for Bracken. Yep. <laughs> you take that old adage and stuff it. Mm, I'm going white. Cinnamon and sugar, as they say. Um, all right. Mm-hmm. I'm satisfied. Hopefully we didn't sound too on our rocks today, as we will. Get off your rocks, Kirk. <laughs> no. No. No? You either. I'm standing up here. When I get preaching, I stay preaching. All right. Well, let's not make this weird and let's wrap this up. Are we uh 
are we going to pull it all together for the people on our training Tuesday coming up? Is that our plan? As far as our last three episodes, we talked about speed work, threshold work, the quality long run. Are we diving into a new mini series? We got to think on that. We're going to talk how to tie it all together. Like a loomist. Is that the term? One who works a loom? A loomist? I don't know. I have a lot of loom-based experience in my life. Explain. I don't. I don't have a lot. Oh, I thought you said you do. I was like, okay, where? No. You you were using old-timey phrases, to and fro and dascent, and I thought, I'm going to say something about looms. And it didn't work. (laughs) Whoo, over the head. All right, man. We're going to do this again next week. So you'll, you'll, you'll hear us yes, then, we are. I guess. Enjoy your long runs. Yeah, hopefully we made it to accompany you for the majority of your long run anyways. Now you can go listen to some other podcasts you like less, I guess. Right, Bracken? Yeah, like Race Brain. Ooh. <laughs>